This is Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Dr. Mary Lateo, who is a professor and fellowship director in the Department of Surgery Gynecology Service at the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Welcome, Mary. So, Mary, we're going to be speaking today about a, a very important topic. Obviously, uh, you've, uh, you've been uh, an expert in this area for, for quite some time and, and, and certainly heard you speak on, on this subject. So I uh, wanted to talk to you about vulvovaginal melanoma. And would you be able to just describe uh, what are the major differences that you typically see between vulvovaginal melanoma and cutaneous melanoma? And specifically speaking about the differences, you know, in terms of stage and, and lymph node status and, and survival. Yeah, thank you, Pedro. So vulvovaginal melanoma, as many know, is a very rare tumor. So the data is somewhat limited, and much of what we say and do is based on extrapolation from the cutaneous melanomas, uh, which may be correct or not. And the reason I say that is uh, if you look at SEER data, which is our, um, uh, one of our national databases here in the United States, it seems that vulval vaginal melanomas tend to present with more regional and distant spread as compared to cutaneous melanomas. They also tend to have a much higher lymph node uh, spread compared to cutaneous melanomas. And the median survivals, at least in a national database sense, seem to be much lower than that for the cutaneous melanomas. Now, there's, there's many theories as to what that might, why that might be. Uh, and one might be that these are often diagnosed at a, a later stage or often not diagnosed in a timely fa fashion just because of the location. And that especially applies to the vaginal melanomas, which often won't be noticed until there is either a gynecologic exam noticing a mass or there's some symptoms, which uh, usually means there's a, a larger tumor present. Additionally, not only do we have a question of the difference between vulval vaginal melanomas, but are vulvar and vaginal melanomas the same entity? And it's also unclear as if you use the same national databases and other databases, it seems that vaginal melanomas also tend to have a worse survival as compared to vulvar melanomas. And again, this is likely due to the, the stage at presentation and sort of the delayed diagnosis, you will, because of the location of these tumors. I see. And, uh, you know, obviously one of the topics that are, are frequently discussed in, in, in any uh, vulvar tumor is the issue of um, uh, surgical resection and margins. I'm interested in the value of, of tumor margins um, and, and how important is it and, and what is considered an appropriate tumor margin when speaking about vulvar or even vaginal melanoma? So, you know, many margins, the amount of margins uh, needed to have a negative margin was determined many, many years ago by surgeons in a somewhat arbitrary fashion, to be honest with you. Uh, since that time, randomized trials specific to cutaneous melanoma uh, have looked at the amount of negative margin that's of value to the patient. And when we talk about melanomas in general, you talk about the thickness, and there's what we call intermediate melanomas, which are those that measure one to four millimeters in Breslau thickness, and then there's those that are thick melanomas. And the margin status uh, issue is the same for both. It used to be a standard 30 years ago to uh, try to obtain a four-centimeter clinical margin, which, as you can imagine, is quite large. Randomized trials that were published over 20 years ago, compare two centimeters to four centimeter margins, and there was really no difference in, in melanoma survival. And that applied to both 
uh, intermediate and thick melanomas. And when you actually look at the data closely, margin status, the amount of margin is really related to local recurrence risk and really has nothing to do with distance spread, meaning that the shorter, the smaller the margin, you might have a slightly higher risk of recurrence in the primary site. But overall, you can then resect that again and likely uh, have the same overall survival for the patient. So this is more important when it comes to vulvar tumors and vaginal for many reasons. Vulvar tumors, because of location, may often uh, approach or encroach on the clitoris and, and other structures such as urethra. Uh, therefore, you know, trying to get a two-centimeter margin may not be possible. In those situations, we will consider uh, shortening that margin to save some of those critical structures. Uh, additionally, for vaginal tumors, it's nearly impossible to get a, a, at least a two-centimeter margin without a more degenerative or extensive surgical resection because of the location and proximity to the bladder, urethra, and rectum. Hey Mario, as a follow-up to that, just uh, wondering in, in your current clinical practice, when you're resecting a, uh, a vulvar melanoma, are you routinely sending that for frozen section to check on all peripheral margins or only when you have a gross uh, disease uh, concern when you're evaluating the, the tissue and you're concerned that you might not have uh, an adequate margin? Yeah, for vulvovaginal, we, I, I don't send for frozen sections of what I, I think is a clinical, uh, clinically negative margin for various reasons. One, they're, they're not perfectly accurate. And two, I'd rather do the resection, let the patient recover, and then see what the final pathology is and have a, another in-depth discussion with the patient, especially if it means possibly resecting clitoris, possibly resecting other organs. So I think I, I, my personal approach to that is uh, I just, I, uh, my goal is for a clinical, clinically negative margin, and I do not do frozen section. But if there's ever a concern of gross involvement or, or, or where I think there's an obvious potential for positive margin, I might do that, but that's rare. So then now going on to the larger lesions and, and particularly some of these lesions that seem locally advanced. Um, in the past, obviously, there was a lot of discussion about the, the potential for exenteration um, uh, being an option for, for these patients. Are, are we still recommending that? How does this play into like the current management of, of the disease when you have much larger tumors? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, too, also, because a general point is that the management of melanoma has greatly changed over the last few years with the evolution of immune therapies and other therapies. So, um, and exenerations were considered for locally advanced melanomas of the vulvovaginal area many years ago, and some still may consider it. These tumors have a high risk of distance spread. To perform such an extensive surgery with the potential for metastatic disease presenting itself soon after the surgeon doesn't make sense in the current time. So we do not prefer, we do not prefer to do exenerative procedures in the primary setting for locally advanced tumors. Um, so it, it really is uh, reserved for very select cases now. Occasionally you'll have somebody who's received radiation to the pelvis in the past uh, and then developing melanoma, which is a very rare situation, but could potentially happen where that may be a situation we consider it or in those who have local or recurrence or persistent disease after treatment where we may consider it, but we have to consider it very carefully to make sure there's no obvious extra pelvic disease. And also, it would be something where we have to see if we can tell what the natural biology will be of the tumor and wait some time on therapy to make sure there is no metastatic disease that develops. 
And then now, Mary, uh, obviously another important uh, topic in, in this discussion is the issue of lymph node assessment. And, and we've moved beyond the full lymphadenectomies for the standard vulvar cancers. Um, where, where do we stand on this subject for, for this disease, for vulvovaginal melanoma? Should we still aim for full and complete lymphadenectomy? Or are we moving towards a, a more selective approach uh, as for other vulvar cancers? Yeah, so the short answer is that we full lymphadenectomy should not be done for melanomas. Now, all the data in central node mapping or or uh, complete or full lymphadenectomy for melanomas, again, based in the cutaneous melanoma world, there's nothing specific to vulvovaginal. But there's also no reason to think that it should be different. So for melanoma now, randomized trials were done many years ago and published that compared actually elective lymphadenectomy to nothing, um, now is before the central lymph node mapping error. And what, what they found is that an elective lymphadenectomy of the regional node uh, for wherever the cutaneous melanoma was had absolutely no impact on overall survival. And that is 10-year overall survival, not two or three. So it's a long um, time period. And really, a, a, a lymphadenectomy of any sort, of any nodal region for melanoma, does not have an impact on overall survival. Um, then came along central lymph node mapping for melanoma, which is now considered the standard in melanoma of all types, and I would say also in vulval vaginal melanoma. And there have been trials that have uh, addressed this question in a randomized fashion. And then are you referring to the, uh, I think there were several uh, of these uh, landmark trials, the MSLT1 and the MSLT2? Correct. And there's others too, but those are the two main ones that, are truly the landmark studies that have informed uh, surgeons who treat melanoma on how to manage uh, central nodes. So MSLT, uh, MSLT stands for Multicenter Selective Lymphadenectomy Trials. These are multicenter large trials, uh, randomized trials, specifically addressing the role of central nodes. The first one, MSLT1, uh, was published many years ago, and then uh, a 10-year follow-up has been recently published also within the last few years. So the design of MS2, MSLT1 was that patients with uh, melanoma, both intermediate and some thick melanomas, were randomized to either the, the primary tumor resection with central node biopsy versus just wide local excision, uh, tumor excision with the, you know, the standard clinical margins and observation and no assessment of lymph nodes of any sort. And in those who, underwent, who were randomized to central lymph node mapping, uh, arm, if the central nodes were negative, they just were observed. If they were positive central nodes of any size at that time, they underwent an immediate completion and lymphadenectomy. In the group that was observed, they were observed with no really standard observation process other than what was per standard, uh, surgeon standards. Uh, if they had no obvious nodal recurrence, then they continued observation. If there was any concern for clinical nodal recurrence, then they underwent the lymphadenectomy at that time. So these findings were published, uh, the, uh, the earlier findings and then a 10-year findings were, were, were published. And some of the key and interesting findings, first of, the, of MS, MSLT1, was that in the central lymph node arm, the central node was actually the only positive lymph node in 70% of cases. Meaning that at, and those that had a positive central node underwent the completion lymphadenectomy immediately 70% of those patients had normal other non-central nodes. 
So in other words, you're doing a completion lymphadenectomy, which is associated morbidity, potentially unnecessarily in 70% of patients. That's the first thing. And the ones with the central lymph node mapping arm, their rate of node positivity was 16%, and then a node recurrence rate of about 3.4%, which one can consider that sentient being the false negative rate, which is in line with all other um, data in other tumors where central lymph node mapping has been introduced. In the observation arm, 16% of patients had a clinical node of recurrence, which is the same rate as the node positivity. This starts to suggest that you will, if you do not remove the lymph nodes, at some point they'll manifest themselves. The concern has been that if you do not take out these lymph nodes, they may then incur a worse overall survival and incur more distant spread in patients who you have not recognized the normal metastasis. The, the oncologic outcomes that have been published now, the 10-year follow-up, which was published about four or five years ago in the Ring Journal of Medicine, revealed that the, the overall melanoma-specific survival for both intermediate and thick melanomas, where they had a, a complete lymphadenectomy or observation, I mean a central lymph node biopsy, sorry, or, or underwent observation, was exactly the same. The only difference was that in the group who had a central lymph node biopsy, their disease-free survival seemed to be better. But that probably is just because of the lymph nodes that were clinically detected and follow up in the observation group. I think that makes sense. So many started to say that there might be a benefit to a, to a completion lymphadenectomy in a, in, in a patient with a central node positive uh, melanoma because of this improved disease-free survival. However, again, this did not transfer into an overall survival, melanoma-specific survival advantage at all with the curves overlapping each other. So, in fact, the MSLT1 study, from, from what I'm hearing you say, uh, really put uh, an end to the complete lymphadenectomy as routine. Correct. So That's then, absolutely correct. So then what, what, what did we learn from the MSLT2? So then MSLT2, the rationale for that was as many, saw, as many saw the results from MSLT1 and some retrospective series suggesting the following, that if, if the central node po uh, biopsy detected the, the nodal disease well and that in patients who had a central node metastasis, 70% of them, that was their only metastasis. And by doing a completion of lymphadenectomy, the overall survival was no different. The thought then became, well, instead of doing a completion of lymphadenectomy in 100% of patients with central node metastasis and potentially incurring extensive morbidity with lymphedema and other morbidities in 70% of patients who may not benefit from that uh, lymphadenectomy, why not just follow the, the nodal region or nodal basins much more closely, and if at any point there's detection of changing of the lymph nodes uh, using ultrasound, then you would do a delayed completion lymphadenectomy. So that was the rationale, and MSLT2 was that was the exact question that was addressed. So MSLT2, they took all patients with central lymph node metastasis, they randomized um, the plan was for 2,000 patients, so it's a large randomized surgical trial. And those who had central melanoma that was resected with the appropriate clinical margins and had a central low mapping uh, performed, if their central nodes were positive, they were then randomized to either an immediate completion lymphadenectomy or observation of the nodal basin with ultrasound every three months. And if any time there was a concern on the ultrasound of um, suspicious lymph nodes or growing lymph nodes, then 
a completion of thyroidectomy was done at that time in those patients. And ultrasound of the nodal basin has been well published, and it's done in, by well-trained ultrasonographers. Uh, you, it, it does provide very valuable information as to what seems to be suspicious uh, uh, lymph nodes. And then now your your standard practice as it pertains to these vulvovaginal melanomas is according to the findings from the MSLT2 study? That's correct, because the, the overall findings from the MSLT2 trial, again, was that the disease-free survival was improved in those who underwent an immediate completion of thyroidectomy. But if you look at the, the data in detail, that's almost all attributed to the fact that Patients who didn't have a completion of anectomy, 30% of them had lymph node mets and other nodes that were then clinically detected in follow-up. So really that disease-free survival is meaningless because it just reflects the fact that you did not take out those additional lymph nodes that may have been positive in some of those patients. Uh, immediately, you just took them out later. The more important finding was that there was absolutely no improvement or difference in either distance disease-free survival or melanoma-specific survival with the curves overlapping each other entirely. There's also been another randomized trial addressing the same exact same question for melanoma um, called the DECOG, dash, so it's D-E-C-O-G dash S-L-T trial, um, which was published a few years ago also with the same exact findings. So now there is multiple level one evidence to support sentinel mapping alone and without immediate completion of thyroidectomy in anybody with melanoma. Yeah, so that sounds really uh, groundbreaking and, and obviously has set the standard of care for, for patients with this disease. So now uh, switching the, a little bit uh, with regards to the topic of uh, adjuvant uh, therapy, um, and then you know certainly for, for patients with nodal metastases, um, multiple other uh, sites of disease, I'm particularly interested in your thoughts on the role of uh, immunotherapy. Sure. So... Um, as, as many, many may know, adjuvant therapy and melanoma of any type was uh, really not a standard approach. There really was uh, disappointing results in using adjuvant therapies of any sort. And this is speaking about interferon, interleukins, chemotherapies. There really has been no strong evidence to support adjuvant therapy in any person with melanoma of any sort uh, until recently. There had been a small, not a small, but a randomized phase two trial uh, that was published uh, about six, seven years ago, for mucosal melanoma, which, you know, we consider vulvovaginal mucosal melanoma. And that looked at using temozolomide and cisplatinum versus high-dose interferon versus observation. That was the first ever trial of any sort of melanoma that, sh that demonstrated a tremendous improvement in both progression-free and overall survival. It has never been validated or confirmed by any other investigators. So for, for some time we were considering... Uh, offering cisplatin temozolomide to specifically our vaginal melanomas, which are more likely to be mucosal than vulvar, but we debate that still. But that wasn't really a strong standard approach. The most exciting recent development in adjuvant therapies is, is, is the use of immunotherapies. I think all of us are very aware of immune therapies and the various agents that are out there. And so the randomized trials that were performed reveal the following. The first one looked at ipilimumab, the use of ipilimumab, which was our first uh, immunotherapy, which uh, blocks CTLA-1, uh, CTLA-4, sorry. Um, so that was patients who had nodal metastasis from melanoma. And this, all these patients that were randomized were before the MSLT2 trials came out. So they all had a completion of thyroidectomy, by the way. 
and all of these that trials I'll mention right now. So, you know, it, it starts to speak to the external val- uh, validity and applying to now the central mode only error, but we do. So for these trials, these patients with stage three or meaning nodal metastasis for melanoma were randomized to either receiving uh, adjuvant ipilimumab or placebo. There was a, a marked statistically significant improvement in both disease-free survival as well as overall survival. With the five-year uh, disease-free survival uh, being 41% in those who received ipilimumab versus 30% in those that received placebo, which was statistically significant, and a hazard ratio of 0.76. The overall survival was 65%. Uh, not the overall survival, I'm sorry, the five-year overall survival rate was 65% of those who re- received ipilimumab and only 54% of those on the placebo. So really, for the first time ever, something that's convincingly or seems to be convincingly improving the outcome in patients with nodal metastasis and melanoma. That was the first trial. There have been others since then. Another trial that was conducted was a randomization of the same patient population to nivolumab versus ipilimumab. That, the, the results that were reported were just a recurrence-free survival, but nivolumab actually resulted in an improved recurrence-free survival as compared to ipilimumab with the benefit of much lower toxicity profiles. So currently, many folks who use single-agent immunotherapy, including us, will prefer to use one of the pdl one inhibitors such as nivolumab or pembrolizumab. So then, yes, I was going to ask you about pembro. Yeah, pembrolizumab also, those, these are kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm discussing them at, like in, in order of when they were published. Um, so it's kind of interesting, right? So pembrolizumab was actually also tested in a randomized fashion in the same patient population for adjuvant therapy. This actually was a randomization of pembrolizumab to placebo. And again, there was a, a tremendous improvement in recurrence-free survival. The oral survival has not been published for this study. Of, pem- of the use of pembrolizumab versus placebo with a hazard ratio of 0.57. So, again, really exciting. Now, multiple level one randomized trials truly showing that we can now, in a real clinical, meaningful way, alter uh, in a good way the outcome of patients who have melanoma that's metastasized through lymph nodes. And, and Mario, is there any role for uh, the targeted therapy, particularly looking at the use of uh, BRAF or MEK inhibitors? Yeah, you know, BRAF and MEK is, um, there, yes, there is. The answer is yes. Um, the melanomas are known to have a, uh, a certain percentage have a BRAF mutations, specifically in the V600E and V600K. Uh, and those are really the only mutations that are felt to be targetable, if you will. Um, and, uh, but, you know, so that's for cutaneous melanomas. They tend to have more BRAF and NRAS mutations. Uh, and, and CKIT's also been uh, assessed in melanomas. And for cutaneous, the CKIT alteration rate is much lower. Whereas in mucosal melanomas, including vulvovaginal, while there are BRAF and NRAS mutations, they are at a much lower rate than you see in the cutaneous. But in, in mucosal, there's a higher CKIT alteration rate. So that's some of the unique uh, genetic profiling uh, comparing the cutaneous to mucosal melanomas. But for patients who have melanoma who do have a BRAF, V600E or V600K, and V600E is the more common one, and occasionally you'll see a V600K, uh, a randomized trial, again, randomized patients who are stage 3 cutaneous melanoma, 
with nodal metastasis to either receiving a, uh, a BRAF and MEK inhibitor versus placebo tablets. And the, the, the nice thing about this tr these drugs is that they're oral. So right. the drugs were debrafenib, 100 mil 150 milligrams twice a day orally, plus trametinib, which is the MEK inhibitor, at 2 milligrams once a day. And they received matched placebo tablets. Again, this trial showed a, a very impressive improvement in progression-free, or as they label it, relapse-free survival in those who received the Vracinib and Trametinib um, with a three-year recurrence-free survival of 58% as compared to 39%, and the median progression-free survival not even reached in the, in the experimental arm. The curves are quite impressive. Um, additionally, the overall survival was improved um, but the publication just says it was an interim analysis, so it can't it should be conclusive. But, you know, using some common sense and looking at the curves and the numbers, it seems to also improve their overall survival. And this is specific to patients who have a BRAF, V600E, or V600K mutation. So lots of exciting things, and particularly in targeted therapy. Um, I understand that, that the Memorial Sloan Kettering has a, a project on genomic sequencing uh, called the MSK Impact. Can you share with us what that is and, and what you guys are doing? Yes, yeah, so MSK Impact is um, uh, MSK uh, developed uh, next-generation sequencing multi-gene panel. Uh, it has now received FDA approval for the past year or two. Um, and what it, what it is is it involves... Um, Next-gen sequencing of uh, nearly 500 genes, I believe it's 468 specifically. Patients will sign up for the MSK impact test, and we can either do just tumor testing alone, and a, a sample of blood is also retrieved to uh, make sure that the mutations found uh, are either somatic or germline. And if patients wish, they can also sign up for what we call Part C, which also will then do specific hereditary mutational uh, analysis in the bloodstream. And so we have been offering MSK impact testing, and the results have been published and presented elsewhere of thousands and thousands of patients of all tumor types. And now melanoma is a routine part of clinical care to do um, BRAS, NRAS, CKIT testing. So because that's part of routine clinical care, we can have the option of offering and ordering MSK impact on all our patients with melanoma. Not only do we get the results of the what we call canonical drivers of melanoma, which are the NRAS, the BRAF mutations, the KIT mutations, and a few other ones which I haven't mentioned, we also get the additional benefit of testing all these other uh, genes, of which some can be targetable. And so what we found is by doing this on many patients, this is preliminary, it's unpublished yet, is that we found that we can find an additional, about 10 to 20% of patients who you test Beyond the, the standard genes that are part of clinical care, you will find mutations in potentially targetable uh, genes. And so we find that it has become a value to our patients, and we've had some preliminary anecdotal experiences of really excellent responses and, and outcomes based on our MSK impact testing. So, Mary, I mean, this is, this is very impressive, and obviously you as a gynecologic oncologist have developed a, a, a unique uh, expertise in, in this area. I was also impressed to hear you uh, talk about the, the multidisciplinary approach that your team has as it pertains to the evaluation of patients with uh, melanoma. Can you share that uh, with us? Uh, what have you done in, in your department um, to assure that these patients get this very comprehensive evaluation? 
Yeah, you know, we I think it's very important, especially with rare tumors, to, to work with others uh, in all fields. And we've really dedicated ourselves to doing that here. And a lot of what I mentioned today has been done in conjunction with my partners in, in, uh, in the melanoma service. Dr. Shustari has been a, a great partner. He is a uh, medical oncologist uh, who actually has a special focus in just mucosal melanomas of all sites. And Dr. Kohlmeyer, who's our radiation oncologist. So we all have office hours on the same day, not in the same area, but the same day. And so patients that we see are coming in as a new visit for uh, a potential vulval vaginal melanoma. We make a strong effort to have that patient see all three of us on the same day so that we can come up with a comprehensive plan that best tailors to the patient's particular situation. And I think that's really what helps us to, to provide the excellent outcomes that we've been having here. I mean, mucosal melanomas are still difficult, and they can be difficult, and Unfortunately, sometimes patients have bad outcomes, but I feel that we're doing everything, at least everything that we can possibly do to offer as much information for the patient and, and provide with the best and optimal treatment plan at their initial diagnosis. Well, Mario, congratulations to you and your team. You guys are doing some really fantastic work, and it's quite impressive, and ultimately, obviously, for the benefit of uh, our patients. Um, it's been absolutely a pleasure. Any uh, closing remarks you want to make? No, I just, um, again, these, these rare tumors have become a passion of mine because there's very little information on them. I think you really have opportunities to make some big uh, differences. Um, I'm always happy to help uh, anyone out there or provide guidance to anyone. Uh, if they want to contact me, I'm always have, ha uh, happy to discuss our approaches. We continue to investigate these, uh, these patients and, and try to continue to come up with uh, improved, less morbid treatments for these patients with the goal of making our patients live longer. Thank you so much, Mary. Oh, you're welcome.